This is the first of three podcasts exploring the use of sound in cinema. All too often we are told that film is a visual medium. It is not, and has not been since Alan Crossland's The Jazz Singer was released in 1927. Since then, sound has been half the picture. However, the way we receive sound, even in real life, it very often goes unnoticed. So much so that if you mention great sound design, thoughts automatically go to any number of David Lynch's works, from a razor head to his short film Rabbits, perhaps Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, or even Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, where one of the characters actually collects sound. But I wish to examine less obvious, perhaps more indirect choices. This first podcast explores how sound can add to the story's emotional and thematic textures. In the real world, almost all the sounds we hear, we cannot control or modulate. Which means that for almost all of our waking hours, we are tuning out those sounds and instead selecting specific sounds to listen to. Paradoxically, however, we undertake the selection process so often we do it unconsciously, which means we don't really listen to the world, but rather filter its content. Which runs contrary to the way our bodies react to sound. According to Julian Treasure, the founder of the Sound Agency website and a regular speaker at TED Talks, certain sounds are soothing to us, while others prompt the release of hormones that can impact on everything from our brainwaves, heartbeat and muscle tension. But then there are some sounds we regard as so soothing to the point of lulling us to sleep. Treasure says that this sound, which regulates at about 12 cycles a minute, closely relates to the rate at which we inhale and exhale when we are asleep. But sounds can also impact directly on our emotions, and Treasure uses this. As an example of the sound we find reassuring. Such an awareness informs a second sequence in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, when suddenly and we know something is wrong. From the cacophony of the cicadas, we notice the comparative silence. And silence, if not an actual sound, is in fact a sound effect. Silence, or the absence of expected sound, can play a crucial role in a scene. But before I go any further, I need to clarify that silence does not mean the absence of dialogue or music. If that were the case, we could explore the opening 14 minutes of Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, which possesses no dialogue, yet interplays Daniel Plainview's prospecting and Johnny Greenwood's music, so we always hear something. However, there are instances of absolute silence in film, if only momentarily. In Leo McCary's Duck Soup, Harpo Marx mimics Groucho's movements in a mirror. A quarter of a century later, Jean-Luc Godard's Bande de Part, where the characters are sitting in a cafe before actually calling for a moment's silence. Then we have Alfred Hitchcock's Marnie, when the title character robs the safe in the office. Or Stanley Kubrick's 2001, where Hal kills Dr. Frank Poole. Shall I play them again? There are several genres that seem to lend themselves to lavish sound design, 
science fiction, horror, adventure and war pictures. The reason for this seems to be because those genres lean heavily on action or atmospheric sequences where no dialogue is spoken. In those moments, the non-verbal sounds act as substitutes for the words. An example of this will be Ridley Scott's 1979 sci-fi horror, Alien. A xenomorph is picking off the crew one by one, so in an effort to find out how they might defend themselves, Lieutenant Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, consults the ship's computer, appropriately called Mother. The computer room is a small, womb-like space, and... A heartbeat? Something breathing? Either way, it creates an unsettling atmosphere alluding to the alien that is hiding somewhere in the ship. So, as Julian Treasure has repeatedly pointed out, different sounds work in different ways. Water, for instance. It's not always soothing. Take Ingmar Bergman's Winter Light. Released in 1962, it was the second in a trilogy that explored a universe that has been abandoned by God. Bracketed by Through a Glass Darkly from the year before, and The Silence from the year after, Winter Light focuses on Pastor Thomas Erickson, played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, who is undergoing a crisis of faith. One of his parishioners, Jonas Persson, played by Max von Sydow, takes his own life near a bridge, and Pastor Erickson drives out to the scene of the suicide. Until now, and in keeping with the theme of God's silence, the film has been quiet. Then, Pastor Erickson arrives out at the river. The scene lasts over four minutes, during which barely any dialogue is spoken, and what is spoken goes largely unheard by the audience. Instead, what we hear is this. A completely natural sound, not embellished, enhanced or remixed for special effect. Rather, what we hear we initially think is merely functional. But as the scene goes on, we realise it to be expressive. Because the film says this poetically, it sounds trite of me to utter it verbally. But the impression is that just like the river, life goes on. And on. Without end. This is the eternity of nature. It flows without morality nor judgement, and so is utterly indifferent to the brief life that has just passed. And we know that by extension, Pastor Erickson feels that this is yet more proof that God has abandoned the universe. Bergman was one of cinema's greatest artists, but for most audiences and critics, his status was secured through the intellectual rigour of his work. If you were to compare his interest in technical experimentation with that of other directors, say, Sergei Eisenstein, Jean-Luc Godard or Stanley Kubrick, with the exception of one or two of Bergman's films, you would not find any equivalent exploration of film form. Yes, Persona was in part an examination of film as film. But for everything else, while Bergman displayed a complete command of film language, he wasn't all that interested in constructing film vocabulary the way Eisenstein did, or deconstructing that language as did Godard, or even push the limits of special effects like Kubrick. Nevertheless, in this short sequence from Winter Light, Bergman took the natural world and effortlessly rendered its elements as expressive telling us something about the world without uttering a word.
Amongst many other things, the films of Steven Spielberg often come laden with technical wizardry. Think of the groundbreaking visual effects in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. EWA 517, do you want to report a UFO? Over. Negative. We don't want to report. The groundbreaking CGI work in Jurassic Park. Don't move. Can't see us if we don't move. But let's not mention Bruce the Shark. However, again, it is the subtle sound on which I wish to focus. For instance, take this exchange from Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the Ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon. In Jerusalem. Where it stayed for many years, until all of a sudden, whoosh, is gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh... Shishan. Yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around about 980 BC, and he may have taken the ark back to the city of Tanis and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. Secret chamber? However, about a year after the pharaoh had returned to Egypt, the city of Tanis was consumed by the desert in a sandstorm which lasted a whole year, wiped clean by the wrath of God. Did you notice the layer of wind echoing through the fully enclosed lecture theatre? But the sound I wish to examine comes from Schindler's List. Mention that film and people will invariably gravitate towards Janusz Kaminski's black and white cinematography and the few moments of colour. But that always distracts us from the sound. In this scene, Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, is trying to coerce Itzhak Stern, played by Ben Kingsley, to help him secure investment for his enamelware factory. You don't have any money. Not that kind of money. You know anybody? Jews, yeah. Investors. He must have contacts in the Jewish business community working here. What community? Jews can no longer own businesses. That's why this one's in receivership. Ah, but they wouldn't own it. I'd own it. I'd pay them back in product. Pots and pans. Pots and pans. Something they can use. Something they can feel on their hands, they can trade it on the black market, do whatever they want, everybody's happy. If you want, you could run the company for me. Let me understand. They'd put up all the money, I'd do all the work. What if you don't mind my asking what you do? I'd make sure it's known the company's in business. I'd see that it had a certain panache. That's what I'm good at, not the work, not the work. Presentation. Now let's listen to it once more, and I will reinsert the sound I left out. Let me understand. They'd put up all the money, I'd do all the work. What if you don't mind my asking what you do? I'd make sure it's known the company's in business. I'd see that it had a certain panache. That's what I'm good at, not the work, not the work. The presentation. That sound is from Schindler's leather coat as he spreads his arms wide to impress Stern with his panache. I don't think audiences would have missed that noise of stretching leather had sound designers Andy Nelson, Stephen Pedersen, Scott Millen and Rod Judkins elected to omit it altogether. But its inclusion reinforces the risk Stern is facing. Although Schindler is not physically threatening Stern, the stretching leather is the emotional threat, the existential danger. So what Stern hears has the value of a creaking rope at the end of which hangs a life precariously in the balance. The next podcast in this series will focus on how sound can add to the thematic concerns of the story.